Gary and Brenda um, would like to invite the, the kiddos to watch a movie and have pizza upstairs. Um, I forget the name of the movie that we're watching, but it's um, it's a biblical movie, of course. It's, I think, about an hour long. So if your kiddo um, uh, can watch that type of movie, what is it? Teenagers, sorry, teenagers. Teenagers might not be good for a toddler. Um, teenagers or older are invited to come upstairs and just um, watch a movie and have fellowship. So, Amanti and Renee, come on up. What will you do with the time that's left? Will you live it all with no regret? Will they say that you love to your final breath? What will you do with the time?
That's good morning in Ukrainian. <laughs> Our time in Poland near the Ukraine border was a bittersweet, life-changing experience where we saw the very best of humanity at a time when people were going through their very worst time in their lives. We met incredible people and heard firsthand what was going on actually in Ukraine. We learned about hope. We learned about resilience. We learned about people's courage for the journey. When the war broke out in Ukraine, Monty saw a Nazarene pastor from Ukraine being interviewed on national news, and he immediately felt the need to go and help in any way possible. We just realized, maybe last night or the night before, that we actually met that pastor then in May in Poland. But at that point, we contacted the Eurasia region and volunteered. And they said they had a place for us to volunteer, which was at the train station at the Poland-Ukraine border. They told us to make flight arrangements, and that was pretty much all the information we had when we left. We served for a month, May 2nd to June 2nd, and then we returned from September 5th to October 5th. In between trips, we had the opportunity to share here at Longmont at the Los Animas Church and the Loveland Church. Last Sunday, we shared at La Junta for their Faith Promise service. The picture in the bottom is us working with their kids in Sunday school, and then we spoke during their Faith Promise service. Our assignment was in Poland, right here, in a small city of Shemish. Shemish is about four miles from the Ukrainian border, and it is the first train station refugees come to when fleeing Ukraine. When the war broke out, it was a train station you saw in the daily news with the crowds, lines of baby strollers, and general chaos from the people fleeing the war. To quote missionary Tiana Sundberg, the Shemish Medica border is the major route and the train station is a key component of the large number of these border crossings. This underlines both the importance and the value of courage for the journey, Nazarene Compassionate Ministries' presence at Shemesh. There's been a mass migration of people in and out of Ukraine since February 24th when the war started. Ukraine is bordered by Moldova, Romania, Hungary, Slovakia, Poland, Belarus, and Russia. But Poland has seen the largest number of refugees. And on this chart, we made this slideshow about a week and a half ago, and it said 11.5 million going through Poland, both coming and going. That number has increased lots in the last week or two because of the increased bombing. The photos on the left is a United Nations employee, and every day she would be interviewing refugees about their migration. We asked if she could just tell us the trend. Are people leaving? Are they going back? What are they doing? And she was not able to do that. She said it was confidential. But she gave me this cute little heart she made with the Ukraine colors, and she said, it's not much, but it's from my heart. So the town, there's a city, right, or a little town, actually, right on the border called Medica. And it is a, located where people can drive across the border or take a bus to that area and walk across the border into Poland. The photo on the left was taken about two weeks ago. We had just decided to take a little drive out to Medica. We hadn't the whole time we were there and thought to see what kind of was going on. And we encountered a three-mile-long line of semis 
sitting there waiting to go across the border. So we decided, let's count them. All right? So we counted them. As we got to the border, we counted 289 semis sitting in line with supplies trying to go to Ukraine. And, uh, you know, we just we had no idea how long they would be sitting there waiting just to try to get supplies into the country. We were part of a Nazarene Compassionate Ministry team. The teams are really fluid. They change. Volunteers can come for a week or some are there for months, and it just varies all the time. We shared the picture on the left with you in May, and that photo had some Ukrainian refugee volunteers and some retired professors from Point Loma. The photo on the right was taken in September. We had missionaries Jay and Tiana Sundberg just visiting for the weekend. They live several hours from there. There was a missionary from Croatia. There was a pastor from Bulgaria and her husband and one of our general superintendent's daughters. The overall mission is to be of help to the refugees in whatever way possible. Our number one goal was to assist refugees at the train station. Our job was to answer questions, greet with a smile, haul luggage, just to make a small difference in one part of their journey. Probably the hardest job here was to help move luggage. And as men from the ages of 18 to 60 aren't allowed to leave the country, there was a mom, grandmother, children to handle these heavy bags. People often had much more than they could carry as their whole lives were in a few bags as they left Ukraine. As Christians, we aim to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And we literally used our hands and feet on this mission trip. (laughs) The train station is big, with underground tunnels and lots and lots of stairs to navigate. This is difficult with luggage, baby strollers, wheelchairs, senior citizens, people with several kids, baby strollers, um, pet carriers, especially since it's not handicap accessible. There are no escalators or elevators in the facility. There's no heat in the tunnel. It's cold now. We're wondering what the winter has ahead for people that are in those tunnels. Um, Thousands of people pass through here a day. And at the train station, there is literally one restroom area. One. And the trick came. People would come to us at the top of Platform 5 ready to find their train. Where's the toilet, they would say. Well, you have to go back down the 25 stairs, go 90 yards through the tunnel, go up 10 stairs. But the new trick was halfway through this, they made it a pay toilet. And they had to have three Zlotys. Well, the people from Ukraine don't have the currency of Poland, so they didn't have money to even be able to pay. If it was during certain hours, you could meet with a cantor and exchange your money, but sometimes of the day you couldn't. We frequently would try to give people money. They were very, very, very hesitant to accept our few coins, even if we'd say, please, really, it was like 50 cents or 75 cents. But they did not want to accept our money if they couldn't pay it back. Monty finally went to the lady that's in charge of taking the money in the bathrooms, and he gave her 100 zlotties and said, if people come and they don't have money, would you please let them go to the bathroom and pay? But we have no idea if, if that really happened. The picture on the left shows the train station. There are five platforms. Starting at the bottom is number one. At the top is number five. Right here at the top of platform five, right here, on those, there's a stairway coming up to this location right here. That's where we spent 95% of our time, helping people up and down those stairs, 
and then showing them that they had another city block to go to get from this location over to where the actual passport control was, where they could go through passport control aboard a train to go back to Ukraine. And, of course, each train that arrived had refugees on it that were leaving, so we would wait over here, help people come from passport control, get back over here to the top of the stairs and down into the tunnel. Uh, the tunnel's 90 yards long. I actually, I had been ex estimating a football field before I walked it off this time. So I know it's 95 yards. That's my golf step. Um, the stairs had 25 stairs to go down into the tunnel and 25 stairs to go back up. So it didn't matter if you were coming to come down and go in the tunnel and go back up to get a ticket to your next destination, then you'd have to come back down 25, go through the tunnel, up another 25 to get to these other platforms, one, two, or three, that had trains going out into the European Union, uh, somewhere to Czechoslovakia or the Czech Republic, uh, Warsaw, Hamburg, Germany, all these different locations. And all those people were coming in from those locations to go back to Ukraine or coming from Ukraine and going out to those areas. The... Uh, and, of course, this was all with heavy bags. You know, there's no bag, no weight limit on a train. We can carry, they could carry bags 70 to 80 pounds, and frequently that's how heavy they were to get them up and down those stairs. We were able to direct people to their next train platform or to the train office to get a ticket to food, water, transportation, to a refugee shelter, or another location. One obvious challenge was language. At the border, most people spoke Ukrainian, Russian, or Polish. We obviously only spoke English, but I did get a compliment that I spoke English very well. <laughs> and I, I said thank you, and then had to say, "But that's you know that's all I've that's all I've got." It's our only but, language, um, so we better be honest. <laughs> but some people were happy to hear English because they only spoke English. Some people that came through, and they'd be very excited that somebody there spoke English. The refugees were brave, kind, appreciative. They just couldn't believe we came from the U.S. If they would hear English, people would turn. They knew it wasn't a British English, and they would be shocked. You came, you came from the U.S. to help us, and they just could hardly believe it. Um, hugs were common. One time, I was at the top of the platform, and a lady came with her son, about 10 years old, and her mother. And by the time she got to us, they, remember they've already been through this whole craziness of the train. And her hands were literally just shaking. And I just reached over and took her hands, and she held on, and she just threw her arms around me and gave me a big hug. Then it took three of us volunteers. We helped her, her, her mom, and her son over to where they were going that block long, and they turned, and every member of their family hugged every one of us. They were just so thankful for that little bit of help. Um, in May, we worked at the train station the evening shift, and we told you that when we spoke to you this summer. We worked the night shift. This time, we had two shifts a day. We were the morning shift and the afternoon shift. But every once in a while, Monty would sneak back there and work a third shift at night. Um, the left is a picture of him carrying the bags up the stairs. The right is me usually using a cart to help them get that walk. This isn't in my script, but I'm going to say a couple other things. Um, I'm going to brag about Monty just a drop. He worked so hard there. So you'd get to the top of the stairs carrying those few hundred pounds, and somebody's standing there waiting, but they want to go down. 
So you run back down and somebody's waiting. And you run back up and you do this for hours sometimes. We got to a place where we were supposed to have a dinner to learn about some financial stuff we had to do. And he takes off his green vest and his shirt's just <laughs> drenched in sweat. It was very hard work and, and he, he continued on and never stopped. Um, I'll tell you a few things that he was called when I was there. He was called a hero for saving a little kid from almost hitting his head on the cement steps. A superhero when he took a couple bags. One day we were walking through the city square with a volunteer. And all of a sudden somebody comes running out of a coffee shop yelling, The legend of the tunnel. And it was, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was the guy. <laughs> It was a guy we had volunteered with in May, and then he sang God Bless America for us out in the crowd. Um, and he helped a woman with her elderly parents one night. They didn't have food, and he helped them, and they said he was a beautiful man for helping. Oh, it's still me, huh? This was a fun story we wanted to share. So Monty gets ready to pick up the two bags, and this lady's saying, no, 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 they're too heavy, they're too heavy. But he grabs them, and he starts down the stairs, and you can tell by my sequence of pictures, she follows him all the way down from behind. I don't know how that's going to help. <laughs> she kept her hands up all the way, and she went all the way down the stairs. Monty said she was his hovering angel on the trip down the stairs. <laughs> Our biggest challenge... Okay, this day was our biggest challenge. So I already told you it was not handicapped accessible, but there you see a sign that obviously someplace is, supposedly. So if somebody was in a wheelchair, there were times that the military and police would allow you to cross this area instead of trying to haul them down the stairs. They always wouldn't. You didn't get to all the time. Are you pointing? So do you see the surface? Do you see the surface of that? I mean, that's as hard to haul somebody down as maybe a flight of stairs. I don't know. It's a, it's a very terrible surface to go down. Um, and that's what we would have to cross. I mean. So we had a, a, an older woman that uh, was, a, was a little bit overweight in this little bitty tiny chair that looked like a, just a chair with legs and little bitty wheels. And it wasn't a wheelchair that you could easily move about with. And so Renee was in the front and pulling the chair and holding the woman in the chair because she thought for sure she'd fall out of it. And they were trying to, and then I was on the back of it, and we're trying to pull across these tracks. See these tracks right here? There's like several sets of them, and those little wheels would fall right down in the middle of them. <laughs> If, if we hit them wrong or anything. So I had to lift her up over every single one of them as we went across. Um, we got toward the end, and, and we were just really happy because all of a sudden the Polish police were came, out, came out there, and they were helping us. That was really neat because a lot of times they didn't. We were very thankful. We were thanking them and thanking them. And right about them, a, tame, a train came screaming through. <laughs> right? And uh, we realized they helped us so they didn't have to scrape our remains off the tracks. <laughs> this next slide shows that uh, there were many organizations from many countries uh, speaking many languages. Some of the countries that were represented were Germany, the UK, France, Israel, Ukraine, Poland, Japan, Croatia, Bulgaria, Russia, and the United States, just to name some. Uh, a, a daily registration was required by the volunteers 
sometimes that was kind of a difficult little deal. We'd have to bring our passports to the Polish military, and they had a little electronic database, so they'd check you off there. Then they'd send you to the next spot. Well, go here and get your little stamp on your card. So you had to go and get a little stamp. There's a little round stamp on each day we were there. Then they would say, okay, now you got your stamp. Now go to the next window. In the next window, they had a sheet that they'd list your passport, your phone number, and the hours of the day that you'd be there and issue you a little colored band, you know, like you go to the fair to get or whatever, uh, for each day so that they'd know you'd registered and what times of day you planned on being at, at the train station. Uh, so that was always an interesting little thing. And, and uh, of course, we were required to wear the vest. You can see the high visibility vests. Some people didn't realize we were volunteers, even with the vests, and they'd try to give you, like, a couple coins for helping them. And you'd say, no, we're volunteers. It's okay. Yeah. Um, uh, The volunteers connected immediately, no matter what the language, age, or culture. We figured out ways to communicate and made friends for a lifetime. It was really, really rewarding in that way. We're going to show a couple of our little things. So the volunteers, um, when they'd leave, the Japanese group would come for like a week at a time. And they made us little origami hearts. And they gave us Japanese Kit Kats. And one gal gave us a little... um, a little drawing her grandmother made about Japanese connection. Right. And then I don't know if I can read this. This just said, you guys are the sweetest. I'm so happy you got to be here and to work together. Teamwork. I hope we work together again. Love you. With lots of love from one of our little volunteers that we worked with each day. From, from Japan. From Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, in May... We shared this with you before, but the primary refugee center was Tesco Refugee Center. It was in a building very similar to a Costco that was empty. And it was run by non-government organizations at that time. Each room, uh, the picture on the left with the cots, there were many, many rooms like that. Each one had about 300 cots for people to sleep on. They picked the room by what country they were going to travel to next, whether it was Germany, Belgium, Austria, France, and it would have that name and that's where you'd stay. At that time, there was free train fare if you were traveling in the EU. That's not true anymore. When we visited, the rooms were packed. It was a good, safe space for people that had nowhere to go, very secure. They had a QR code that was linked to our passports electronically, and we had a band with that on it. It was very impressive. It had lodging, food, outside areas, pet care, counseling, laundry services, medical care, and outside play areas. Right now, most of the non-government organizations are gone. The Polish Red Cross is in charge of it, and they're just housing about 60 people there a night. Is it me again? Okay. One difference we noticed in September was rain. Basically, all day, every day. (laughs) Our volunteer, Natasha, she's one of our Ukrainian volunteers, she would pass out ponchos to help keep people dry during their long wait in line. People sometimes waited up to four hours for their trains. Then she would collect them again at passport control when they crossed through, and then she'd go hang them up on a line so she could use them the next day. And she took us, and she was so proud to show us these. We have no idea whose fence that was. (laughs) It didn't belong to the Nazarene Church or the train station. She just found a fence, and apparently they were okay with her hanging up ponchos every single day. That day we waited. One day it was, um, we got there probably 7.30, and at noon the train still hadn't gone. It was supposed to leave at 10.15. And we found out the Ukrainian president's wife had come through on Platform 4. 
Whenever a dignitary comes through, they stop all train traffic coming or going, and people are just kind of frozen where they are until that person's, you know, through safely. They never tell us that. We have no idea. So all the people are coming to us, you know, where's my, my train, 1015, and we're like, they won't leave you, <laughs> you know, just stay in line. But you can see, oops, sorry, Monty carrying water. So Nazarene Compassionate Ministries bought water, and the, our volunteer, Natasha, the one with the ponchos, usually passed it out. But on this day, we were there on the morning shift, so we went and got water and passed it out. The interesting thing about by getting water in Poland so here in the U.S., we can buy like a 36-pack or a 48-pack, something similar. The biggest we could find there in a store was 12. So we would go to a store with a cart, and we would load up like 20 12-packs of water. But the trick came at the register because they don't sell it by a 12-pack. They sell it by an individual bottle. So then they would take out a calculator, get it, and start, and we have a line of people behind us. <laughs> Probably not very happy with us. As, and they did that same at no matter what store you went to. It wasn't just a certain store. That's just how they rang it up. So purchasing water was a little bit of an interesting challenge. In May, we did maintenance work during the day and worked the train shift in the evening. Uh, that was, and that was, at that time, there were only two trains, one in the morning and one at night. Uh, in September, uh, we not only worked, uh, there were four trains coming and going per day, but uh, we had extra duties besides. Uh, our leaders that had been in there in May had, had left, and we told them, you know what, we'll do anything you want us to do except the finances. Guess what we ended up having to do? Our duties included hospitality. Develop weekly support, meals, prayers, and celebrations. Looked after the needs of the team, emotional, spiritual, and physical. Extended hospitality to the wider volunteer community. Coordinate with Vika, the cleaning lady. Make sure all consumables are stocked in the safe space in the hub. We worked with the missionary Tiana for volunteer arrival and departure schedules. And then finance and systems, even though we said no, no, no. <laughs> purchase, and according to, uh, purchase and accounting for all expendables. Pay maintenance and system bills. Communicate with the finance coordinator for the Eurasia region. Purchase consumable supplies and equipment for each of the four spaces. Provide vehicle maintenance. And maintain important documents. We worked double shifts six days a week, and Sundays were team days. It's a five-hour round trip to, to uh, Krakow, and on our first Sunday, we went there. The photo on the left is one of our team members, Toscani Chambo. She is the daughter of one of our general superintendents, and she was giving the message at the church service there in Krakow. Other weeks, we worshipped in the church in Shemish. The music and service was in Polish, and they attempted to translate into our headphones for us. It was a little difficult understanding all that. Despite the, uh, the, the language barrier, uh, the music was very worshipful, and, and it was a nice experience. Uh, when we planned team outings for Sunday afternoons, the, uh, okay, that's yeah, what we did on Sundays. The photo on the right is an overlooked viewpoint looking over the city and the countryside. And we also ate uh, at food trucks and rode a chairlift that was on the outskirts of Shemish. The photo on the left is our third Sunday. We visited the arboretum, 
At the request of our Ukrainian volunteer, it had been on her wish list for a long time, and we had a beautiful afternoon there. The photo on the right was our fourth Sunday. We took the team on a mountain drive and treated them to a breakfast at a beautiful hotel. We would like to share a few personal stories of people that we met on the top of Platform 5. This is Sergey on the left and, and Masha on the right. And uh, believe it or not, there was an organization there that was very active called Russians for Ukraine. These were Russian people. Uh, they uh, cohabitated in a house in Medica that had anywhere from 25 to 36 people staying in one house. And they took uh, turns and shifts. Uh, Sergey became a good friend of ours. He was there every morning that we were there. Masha many times in the evenings. This group of people rotated both to the train station in Shemish, and they had a tent at Medica, uh, an overnight location for refugees. So this group was very well organized and was performing shifts uh, every day at all of these 24 hours a day. Uh, both Masha and Sergei were subject to persecution if they were in Russia. Sergei had been a volunteer with the opposition leader who had had an attempt on his life, was now in prison. Uh, uh, Sergei watched while a policeman went to his front door looking for him. And, of course, if he goes in, it's interrogation, imprisonment, just because he had a picture with this gentleman that was the opposition uh, to Putin. Um, the, and Masha was a trained psychologist. She had helped shelter some of these men of Russia that were trying to avoid uh, the war, that were actually actively uh, protesting against it and had been uh, subject to imprisonment as well. Uh, and, and they are both seeking asylum in, in uh, Poland or wherever they can go that's safe for them. The picture on the left is David. We met him at the top of Platform 5. He's an Hasidic Jew. He's from the U.S., but he lives in Israel now. He was traveling with hundreds of other Hasidic Jews, and they were on an annual pilgrimage to Uman, a city in central Ukraine, during Rosh Hashanah. They had been warned by the Israeli government and the Ukraine government, please don't make this pilgrimage this year. But, but despite the warnings, they chose to do that. On the other side, the right... Um, I have two volunteers listed. Rio was one of our Japanese volunteers and just a bundle of energy and positive. Every person he'd walk up with their suitcases, he'd turn and tell them, you know, have a great day, even if they didn't speak English. And he had the biggest smile on his face. And in my earlier slideshow, there was a picture of him. And I don't know if you could tell, but he has a lipstick kiss on his face. One of the ladies kissed his cheek for helping. Um, but Anton came to the top of the platform one day. And he said, I'm going to be a volunteer, but I don't know where to go. Well, where we're standing is as far as you can go to registration. And I started to explain it, and I said, no, I'll just take you. Come with me. So I took him to the military, and I waited while he got registered everywhere. And we went back together, and we became fast friends from that moment on. We found out um, he was, he's Ukrainian, but we found out he was alone in the city, didn't really know other people, didn't have any connections. So we kind of adopted him into our group, and everywhere we went, Anton went with us, and he just was so wonderful to have along and so appreciative of everything. And he um, was really helpful because one of our volunteers only spoke Ukrainian, and he could speak Ukrainian and English. So it really helped with communication during our outings. Our last morning there, it's pouring rain. Monty and I are on the platform working, and there he comes, and he had 
little gift bags for both of us like this. For each of us. And he had found little mementos from every place we had taken him to. And he liked little magnets and he had this for us. And he really thanked us for including him and for him being a part of it. And we were very thankful that he was. It made a big difference to us also. The slide on the left shows a young woman, uh, Roxanne, I guess she's not a young woman, she's retired uh, RN, who served with us in May for over a week at, the, at Shemesh there. Uh, she has since been involved, become involved in an uh, organization called Global Care Force that was created by Dr. Gary Morsh. Uh, he's a Nazarene medical doctor. It's not affiliated with the Nazarene Church, but it could about just as well be. Um, and uh, uh, Roxanne is leading medical teams in the Ukraine for two to three week uh, deployments, providing medical care, lacking as doctors in Ukraine treat the wounded for the war. Please pray for this group uh, as they will be returning to Ukraine fairly regularly uh, through the winter. On the right is Vika. She's a 17-year-old Ukrainian refugee. She's living in the town of Poznan, which is several hours from where we were. But the missionaries, Jay and Tiana Sundberg, brought her along, and she worked at the train station. She's wrapped in a blanket because I told you it was rainy and wet and cold the whole month. But she had such interesting insight, and I'm going to share a post that she wrote. English is not her first language, and I'm going to read it just like she wrote it. Our American volunteers who don't speak Ukrainian or Russian, was helping a woman and a child to carry the bags, and they didn't understand each other. I noticed this and appeared just to help. And this woman was so angry, she said, why don't they understand me? So she asked for my help. And when I was helping her with the suitcases, there were many of bags, and it was hard for me. A man came and helped me carry the suitcases while the woman was walking with her daughter. And everything was okay. Until she started commanding when we stopped to rest. She said, let's hurry up, I'm late. She was behaving badly for us. And the man didn't like it, and he just left the suitcases and went. And I kept carrying the suitcases alone. It was a time when there were few volunteers at the station. And when I brought these bags to passport control, she didn't even say thank you. I started to be angry for a few minutes. But then I stopped and thought, she's alone with a little daughter. No one knows what life she's had or why she's so evil. Maybe someone from her family or inner circle died on a war. Maybe she lost her home. War has made some people evil. And it's not my problem. It doesn't mean I'm bad if she treated me badly. And it doesn't mean that she's bad. It means she feel bad. So I analyzed it all, and my anger immediately disappeared. Pretty sweet from a 17-year-old girl. And, you know, 99.9% of the time, the people were very kind and very grateful. Okay. On the left is Helena. She, we met. She came early for a train into Ukraine. She was standing at the bottom of the steps, and she didn't want help carrying it up because she had a lot of time. She just watched us work. She just stood and watched us. Later, she approached and, through a translator, asked if she could buy us coffee. Then she asked if we could take a photo together. Then she asked if we could be Facebook friends. And, you know, the Ukrainian language is a variation of a Cyrillic script, so I, I couldn't type that in, but my friend Anton just happened to walk up. I handed him my phone, and in about 30 seconds, you know, he had us as Facebook friends. But then she told us she would pray for us. And we thought, here she is, going into the uncertainty, into a war-torn country. Here we are just carrying suitcases up and down some stairs. And she said she'd pray for us. 
It truly touched our hearts. I got a message from her midweek, and she wanted to know where we were. She had come back into Poland, and she brought presents for us from Ukraine. The people are amazing. And Natasha on the right, she's the one that hangs the ponchos up. I just wanted to share a little message that I heard from her this week. She wrote, sometimes I'm very scared of what will happen next because we have nowhere to return. This war has completely destroyed our lives. As we work here, I pray that the Lord will show us our future. Despite the situation in Ukraine, many refugees have returned or are returning. They may be out of money or are uncomfortable with living arrangements in the European Union, have visas expiring or missing family back home. There are husbands, fathers, grandparents, gardens to tend, animals to care for, still home in Ukraine. The overriding sentiment, as we shared in May, the same. I want home. One person said we're safe here, but our souls are in Ukraine. In September, we saw about 2,400 people returning to Ukraine each day to the cities of Zaporizhia, Odessa, Kiev, and Lviv. The trains were full with no tickets available. We're going to share a prayer that was written by Lexi Sundberg for World Refugee Day. She was volunteering in Poland. She's still there when she composes. After each stanza that Monty reads, you'll see that we're going to say the words, Oh Lord, hear our prayer. And I'll ask you to say that part with me when I hold this up. A prayer for World Refugee Day. Like David in the camps of the enemy and Paul escaping from Damascus, may God keep them safe from those who wish harm. May they walk through hostile places with the protection of the Lord upon their shoulders. And may they find their way through persecution to peace. For those who are forced to flee, we pray. O Lord, hear our prayer. Like Jonah in the belly of the whale and Elijah in the cave fleeing from Jezebel, may God give them shelter in unexpected places. May God give them rest when they are weary and be with them when they are afraid. For those who are looking for shelter, we pray. O Lord, hear our prayer. Like Joseph finding a place in Egypt and Nehemiah returning to rebuild Jerusalem, may God bring them home wherever that home may be. May God give them peace where their feet may land. For those who are making new homes or returning to old ones, we pray. O Lord, hear our prayer. Like the Israelites wandering for 40 years, and like Jesus himself a refugee, may God's presence be made known wherever they may go. May they be comforted by Emmanuel, God with us. For those who are refugees, asylum seekers, strangers in a foreign land, we pray. O Lord, hear our prayer. Father God, who turns swords into plowshares and causes the lion to lay down with the lamb, who walks with us in the valley of the shadow of death, and calls us to love our enemy. We pray for an end to tyranny, to violence, to death and destruction. We pray for peace and prosperity for our neighbors, and for compassion and empathy for ourselves. God of reconciliation and recreation, of justice and mercy, remember your promises and bring us peace. O Lord, hear our prayer. We have two parts we're going to do in closing. One, we're going to once again share, it's a very short... um, little video that was made by a woman we volunteered with in May. We've shared it with you before. She was from Colombia studying in Israel. And we have watched it many times. We finally quit. I don't think we still cry every time we watch it. We try not to. But it really gives a glimpse of the train station. One thing I'd like you to watch for today, it's early on in the video. 
you'll see Monty standing and kind of a half a circle of a family standing around him. And watch, there's a little boy about, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 years old. And you see his face, his head's down. And all of a sudden, his head comes up and he's just beaming with a smile. I think he knew some English and he could help his family out in that moment. So watch the video and then Monty will close in prayer. Going into the Polish-Ukrainian border, we were expecting to encounter the chaos that we saw on the news. However, we were found with empty refugee camps and many organizations who had once helped were leaving behind without much to do and were saying bye to Poland. What we also did not expect was to find the 1120 train, the train to go back, the train to Kiev. The town of Shemish is the one that has received thousands of people in the past few months. Now, the train station is sending back many who had come before. When we first got to the train station, we could feel the history that the ancient building had lived. The building that was once again living history. Our task was to help the people carry their belongings to the platform 5, which was where the train was leaving from. You could see the people carrying their possessions in a way that once our ancestors did. Because just like them, they left their homes with as many things as they could carry. With all their valuable belongings and whatever they thought might serve them for their travel into the unknown. They were able to fit their lives into a bag. And when helping them, what we were actually doing was helping them carry their lives. Volunteers from all over the world came to help do this task, and they spent hours at the train station doing this mission. Who would have imagined that such a small act, like carrying a bag, could make such a difference? Because you could actually feel the difference the moment that the people breathed more calmly, the instant you took their bags. Bags that waited so much that you couldn't understand how they had managed to carry them for so long. And days went by and people kept coming and coming into the 1120 train. And as the scene happened, night after night, a poem by Padre Otuma came to mind. When I was a child, I learned to count to five. One, two, three, four, five. But these days, I've been counting lives, so I count one, one life, one life, one life, one life, one life. Because each time is the first time that that life has been taken. Legitimate target has 16 letters and one long, abominable space between the two dehumanizing words. And just like that, I was also counting lives. And I counted stories, and I counted paths, and I counted children, and I counted smiles. Yes, smiles. Because after everything they had been through, right before the 1120 train, there were smiles. Smiles of the people who were also counting. But they were counting the minutes to go back home back home with their lives in their backs.
I still get a little bit. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, please help the people of Ukraine. Help us to not forget the refugees of Ukraine. Help us to support them by giving to Nazarene Compassionate Ministries, Ukraine. Be with us as we send crisis care kits and support and aid to meet the serious challenges that the coming winter presents. Help the Ukrainian people to find ways to provide home heating, electrical energy, and sustenance for their well-being. Thank you, Lord, for all the blessings you have helped us to provide to Ukraine. And above all else, use your mighty power to end the war and the cruel Russian aggression in this and anywhere else in the world where such things are taking place. Bless these people as we go out from your sanctuary in the almighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank <laughs> you.